Welcome to Unga Decoded. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. In this podcast series, we bring you inside the biggest global development gathering of the year, the UN General Assembly. Skip the travel, the traffic, and the security lines, and join us for candid conversations with people at the leading edge of global development, global health, and humanitarian assistance. This is Unga Decoded. This is our final episode of Unga Decoded, and frankly, it's an exciting one for DevEx. If you've been following the work of the United Nations for a while, you probably already know the name Colin Lynch. I may be a little biased, but I don't think there's another reporter in the world who is better sourced, more knowledgeable, maybe even a little feared inside the United Nations than Colin which is why we're so pleased to have him as our newest senior global correspondent at DevEx, where Colm will be digging into the UN's health, humanitarian, and development work to find out what's really going on at these big and influential agencies. In the meantime, I sat down with Colm to find out what he made of this year's UNGA, how the global gathering has changed since he first started reporting on the UN, and about his own views on the UN's role in the world and how that informs the way he does his reporting. Here's our conversation. Hey, Colm, how are you? Good, good. How you doing, Michael? Good to be here. Great. So we're through it. We've gotten to the other side of UNGA. And I've always wondered, you live in New York. You're a New Yorker. You're also an UNGA enthusiast, someone who cares about and covers this week or two of madness in New York City. What is it like when the the dust settles? Are you the only New Yorker um, who's disappointed when UNGA comes to its end? Well, uh, first of all, I I would challenge your assessment. I'm not an an enthusiast, and I don't particularly like the GA. It um, it actually years ago it used to be a bit more freewheeling. You could run into some of the big players, the heads of state. I remember, you know, running into President Musharraf in the basement. You know, after he had just finished a, an interview with someone, you could kind of corner these people, even though they have lots of security around them. Uh, now we're kind of walled off from everything. I mean, we've gradually lost access to players. Everything has to be pre-planned in advance. There isn't a lot of spontaneity. So in that sense, it's a bit frustrating. Um, I, I'll give you one sort of image, though. I mean, after it ended on the Friday, on the, on the Monday or uh, on the early, early in the week when it ended, I went over to the UN to do an interview with Al Jazeera and the place was absolutely desolate. There was nobody there. I mean, it was like the only person and the camera crew and one of the producers. Um, so it almost felt like going in there on the weekend. Um, you know, if you get there at the beginning, you can't move around on the day the U.S. president comes every year. The whole that whole side of the, the city is blocked off. You know, you want to get into your office. But if the you know, if the if the you know, if the president's coming in, you have to stand there and wait with you know, uh, massive numbers of people until he's in the building and everything's secured. But you you do kind of get over is uh, the sense of exhaustion. So there's enormous relief. Um, in, in previous um, iterations of my career, I had to write long newsletters every day, and those were heavy lifts. And so it was always a great feeling when you didn't have to write one of those. 
Um, I remember several years ago when the Pope came to Unga and it was impossible to go anywhere. That was maybe the peak of, of Unga madness that I ever saw. Um, but I, I've noticed the same. I mean, I spent very little time at UN headquarters this year. And I wonder if part of what you're observing is something that we've talked about a bit here, which is the sort of migration of, um, of the focus from the GA itself to all of these side events you know, that have popped up and sort of grown into a whole UNGA ecosystem. Or maybe that's just a phenomenon that's kind of specific to the development community. How do you look at that that balance between the official proceedings that happen inside the UN headquarters and this whole universe of things that have grown up? Well, this is kind of new for me because in the past, um, I worked for a magazine and I worked for a newspaper and I generally covered what was going on in the building. And a lot of times the Washington reporters would cover what was going outside the building. But I was kind of floored by how um, how big these events were, how many people, um, the caliber of speakers um, was pretty high. And it seems like, you know, there's this whole ecosystem out there that's sort of part of the UN, but it's also kind of apart. And and I thought that was kind of fascinating. And, and also, you know, there's still kind of restrictions on where you go to during the, you know, the, the Clinton Global Initiative. The press is kind of hidden in a little cave-like area behind uh, the bleachers. And you, you, know, you can't even see Bill Clinton or Hillary speaking unless you kind of look through what looks like a, uh, you know, a, a jail cell or something like that. So, so there's still, you know, the reporters are still kind of put in their proper place by, you know, forces of authority. And so that hasn't really changed. Um, but, but by and large, you had kind of more at physical access to people. You can get close to them. You can see them. You can, you know, pull them in the corner and ask them a question. So in that sense, I kind of like to have that sort of freedom of movement. Well, let, let me ask you this. Do you think it's important for people working in development to pay close attention to the the you know parade of speeches that happen inside the GA? And I know you were paying attention, so and, and this time paying attention from our sort of development perspective, where there are things that you picked up on um, listening to those speeches that you think do have significant bearing on the sort of development agenda writ large. Look, I, I think that the the UN General Assembly general debate—that's when all the world leaders speak—are are unbelievably tedious. Um, most of the speeches, everybody is saying the same thing. Um, they can be agonizing. It starts first thing in the morning, goes into you know into the evening. One hundred ninety-three member states. Maybe not everybody speaks, but most. But that being said, if you if you do invest the time in listening you can really kind of get the pulse of where the, the sort of, you know, the kind of global zeitgeist is, where people, what are people focusing, what are they thinking about? This General Assembly was interesting. I mean, these were not entirely new issues, but, uh, you know, the Ukraine war was. And you could see this, I mean, I described it in my piece as sort of a split screen where you had the United States, the French, the Europeans, others, very much engaged in this sort of, you know, geostrategic battle with the Russians and the Chinese. And so, you know, you see this meeting as a kind of pivot for them, an effort to sort of start to try and rally the international community behind this kind of pressure campaign to get Russia to step down. And then the other split screen is, you know, like the Mia Motley's and Mackie Saul from 
Barbados and Senegal, where, you know, they're not blind to what's going on in Ukraine, but they have existential challenges, and that's what they want to focus on, and that they feel that this sort of intense focus on the geostrategic battle between the U.S. and Russia and China and the West is um, has risks for them, uh, which they're already experienced in terms of a worsening food crisis. I think that people from the developing world want the focus to be on a negotiated peace, not sure that that's really realizable at this stage, but they really want to focus on issues like global debt, which they're getting hit with, um, the impact of inflation, the, uh, the, the, the sort of strength of the dollar, which is causing problems for them. They want to focus on climate change. They want to know why adaptation funds are not coming. I mean, you had Pakistan's leader coming and basically just describing this apocalyptic biblical flood that has you know destroyed a third of the country so i think there was really a great deal of frustration you know that the west was so seized with this sort of ukrainian war and its battle with the russians and chinese I and mean, Mackie saw was saying we want to engage with all of our partners i mean the u.s to, you know to its credit and others i think they recognized um you know their audience when they came to new york uh, they were focusing primarily on ukraine but um, but they also had the big you know uh, global fund on malaria, um, you know tuberculosis and AIDS uh, meeting. They contributed six billion. They did a pretty good job of getting you know not their target of eighteen billion, but I think they got something like shy of fifteen billion. So there was I think an acknowledgement that there is this divide and this sort of um, separate set of priorities, and so they were trying to sort of show that they still care about those issues. My impression is that the the U.S. government, the Biden administration, and close close allies are, have sort of posi- positioned um, Ukraine winning the war as sort of prerequisite to being able to deal with all of those other things that you talked about. Because if it goes the other way, then the sort of entire uh, ecosystem of international cooperation falls apart. Um, that seemed to me to be kind of the key message that Biden delivered in particular, you know, he led right off the bat with Ukraine, um, but really in the sense that this is kind of the keystone in um, any sort of support structure for international cooperation that's going to exist going forward. Right. And it's a good argument and it's should be a persuasive argument. I mean, the, the, the one issue that, you know, that he keeps coming back to is that this is a fundamental attack on the international system. And, you know, and he, he has the, the Secretary General of the United Nations saying the same thing, which is, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a stark, clear violation of the UN Charter. It undermines the core, you know, underpinnings of the United Nations. And if we don't stand up in this case, then, you know, the whole house of cards can come, you know, undone. Um, so it is a very powerful argument. It's a simple argument and it's true. Um, however... Um, you know, they have not been particularly successful in persuading the rest of the world and those who are sort of suffering, particularly the sting of inflation, of increase in food prices, and, you know, who are really, really suffering. I mean, if you're, you know, a, a leader in Somalia and you're facing the prospects of famine, um, that's going to be your priority, and it should be. And anything that detracts from your ability to contain that is going to be secondary. Yep. Just staying on this point for one more second. The other notable thing to me was that Biden 
explicitly appealed outside of the community of democracies in his speech and seemed to sort of make an attempt to broaden that coalition sort of in the way that you're describing, um, you know, while at the same time making clear that democracy promotion, that sort of demonstrating the effectiveness of democracies is still a core part of his foreign policy agenda. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the administration strikes that balance between, you know, saying democracy is it, it's what everyone should aspire to, but also we're willing to work, you know, with countries that aren't necessarily um, reflecting that form of governance. It just, it struck me as a rhetorical shift that I haven't really quite heard before from the U.S. government. But I would think that the United States would always rather have as much of a universal coalition as they would a democratic coalition. If you look back to the first Iraq war, um, there were plenty of, you know, bad actors who were part of the effort. You know, you didn't have a break with Russia, didn't have a break with a lot of other countries. Um, I think maybe Yemen voted against it and was punished with a, a sort of steep cut off in aid. Um, but I mean, I think that, you know, the whole point to the UN is to build as broad a coalition as possible. And, you know, the way that the UN works is you don't necessarily or not necessarily negotiating with countries, but with regional groups. So there are democracies and there are autocracies within, you know, the Asia group, the, you know, the Latin America group, um, the African group. And so, you know, you want to win all the votes. You know, to me, the, the sort of focus on democracy is kind of a strategy that's sort of second best. If you can, you know, if you're at the UN, you really want to isolate Russia, right? Like there were countries like, you know, in the beginning of the conflict, like Hungary, right, which is kind of moved in a more autocratic direction and was very kind of critical of the Russian role in the war. Serbia was critical of the Russians in the beginning. So these were countries that, you know, would never, we wouldn't necessarily think as being aligned with the U.S. or with, you know, the West necessarily, but that I'm sure that President Biden and the White House and other European leaders were thrilled with that. The problem is, is that that kind of focus on the violation of the charter and that kind of intense criticism of Russia in the first days of the conflict, that has kind of been diluted by, you know, the realities of the economic and financial impact that it's had across the world. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. I want to ask you about some of the reporting that you did leading up to this week, and specifically um, this really amazing piece that you published on how the highly lauded, you know, groundbreaking deal to unlock uh, grain from Ukraine um, came together. And, you know, this is something that 
has been held up as maybe the most significant thing that Secretary General Antonio Guterres has done um, over the last few years. Your piece really peels back the curtain. Um, and I think for me, complicates uh, what the United Nations is, how it works, who sort of influences it, and how different things come together. Maybe you could just give us kind of the, the quick uh, synopsis of what this grain deal actually was and who was involved. Right. So I've always had this sort of fascination with who actually makes the diplomacy. And, and it goes back a while. I remember covering the Iraq oil for food deal, which if nobody remembers, um, that is like at, at the end of the first uh, Iraq war, the UN essentially had, um, had control of its entire oil industry. And uh, it was, you know, the key positions uh, running that industry were controlled by the US, by the British, by the Russians and others. And so one of the things that I, I spent a lot of time interviewing, you know, European, Russian, Chinese diplomats about their negotiations about, you know, the final oil for food resolution and how it was cooked up. And always thought that this was, you know, something that the governments did, the diplomats, skilled, you know, legal lawyers and diplomats engaged in. And it wasn't until years later that we realized the degree to which um, a sort of a Texas oil man had been behind the scenes, you know, with his own lawyers, had been sort of providing early drafts of the resolution and had enormous influence on the way it came out. So in this case, you know, I, I also I mean, one thing we haven't quite looked at in, in great detail is the degree to which um, commercial co commodity traders, other private sector interests. I mean, this is all about grain and money and volumes of commodities going in and out of the region. And the people who do that are not governments, they're private companies. And so, um, I, I mean, we still haven't sort of, I think, really pulled back the curtain on that yet. But what I looked at was, you know, sort of how did the diplomacy come together? And I was surprised because, you know, I, I you think, oh, the, you know, the Turks are already doing sort of mediation with the Russians, right? and the Ukrainians. So maybe there was some discussion about some of this sort of stuff. You know, the Americans, of course, they have their finger at everything. Maybe the Americans, you know, they're smart people that they have, you know, in the State Department or the White House were coming up with these ideas. And what I discovered was that there was, there's an organization in Geneva called the uh, Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. And it's run by a guy named David Harland, who is a former New Zealand um, diplomat, and he was a star, in a young kind of star in the UN firmament in the 1990s. He was always seen as someone who was going to be one of the leaders in the UN, and I think there was sort of frustration by him and others about the course that the UN was taking, and he went off and went to work in this, you know, organization, which had a lot of people with experience in mediation, and conflict prevention, and they started building up this team, and they would just informally provide, you know, advice to various parties and that sort of stuff. So after the war started in Ukraine, you know, they were looking at this idea of negotiating a ceasefire. The UN was focused on that. Governments were focused, and they just sort of felt like, you know, this is not going to happen. Maybe we can find some other issues where we can get them moving in the direction of talks. There was a woman named uh, Marina Domushkina who uh, works in that HD pod 
in Kiev and who had been there during the war. And one of the areas that, that she saw was that, um, look, this grain issue is going to be a massive problem. We provide most of the, you know, wheat and grain for much of the world, you know, Ukraine and Russia. And maybe we should sort of look at this issue and see what's there. And at the same time, there was a former World Food Organization um, uh, sort of official, Richard Wilcox, who was visiting like an academic conference in Kenya and was running into sort of African diplomats who were kind of alarmed at the soaring price of commodities, of, um, you know, problems with ships stuck in the port. And, 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 you know, he understands the degree of dependence that African countries have on Ukraine and, um, and Russia for their staples. And so he, in the hotel there, basically, you know, basically wrote up you know, a short one-page plan. So he took it to David Harlan, and the two of them started working all their contacts. They know a lot of senior people uh, in the African Union, at the WTO. Uh, they went to the UN, and they kind of fed it into the system there. And before long, it ended up becoming the proposal, one of three proposals that uh, that uh, Antonio Guterres brought to Putin in April. And, you know, at the, at the moment, it didn't look like there was much interest from uh, the Ukrainian-Russian side to do it, but no one ruled it out. And it eventually, as you said, evolved into this incredible deal that really marked, I think, one of the, the major successes of Guterres's um, term. And it's fascinating. I mean, I think the U.S. was smart enough to sort of run with it, but it was interesting how this kind of really was cooked outside of the, you know, the UN and also sold and implemented. All the people who work for HD are now senior officials and all the key UN negotiating teams are in Istanbul helping with running the Joint uh, Coordination Center, which is overseeing the monitoring of exports. So I thought it was a really fascinating story. Yeah, it it is fascinating. Um, it just opens up this entire world of negotiation, mediation, um, the sort of you know, not that it's anything nefarious, but the sort of underside of of how these great advances in in peace and diplomacy come together. I'm just wondering if uh, Tom Hanks or George Clooney is going to approach you for the the screenplay and and whether they'll offer you a, a bit. Yeah, part. yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I'll take that. <laughs> a hit a Hitchcock walk in, you know. <laughs> um, but I also I'd be curious to know. Does getting that kind of awareness of, of how all of this comes together behind the scenes and, and the fact that it's not, you know, um, Antonio Guterres having this sort of um, eureka moment alone in his office where he figures out how to um, feed the world with Ukrainian grain and strike a, a bargain with all of these, you know, conflicting actors. Um, does, does having that view make you more hopeful about kind of the the role of the United Nations in resolving some of these crises? Or does it um, raise sort of alarm bells for you about the way that various interest groups or, or influential actors are kind of inserting themselves into those processes? No, I, I don't really tend to think about things, whether they're good or bad, right? So I just think that this is the way the world works. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, I think it does. It says there, you know, some reason to be critical about the UN's. I mean, they should have people, you know, generating these ideas in the system. And like the fact that they're not in this case, um, you know, you ask questions. What is it about an outside 
outfit that it has the flexibility. Maybe they're, you know, as one person told me, you know, maybe it's because they're not, they're not so concerned about failure. I mean, if, if Guterres like tries something like this and it fails, you know, it, it looks like the UN is incompetent and feckless, right? Um, but, you know, this was the sort of proposal that really no one else could have delivered. I mean, the people at HD couldn't bring this thing home. Um, you know, the US, the Europeans, their relationship with the Russians. I mean, they're basically participants in the war. They can't, you know, they're not, um, they're not even handed, um, you know, mediators. The Turks have complicated relations with everybody, right? So, you know, they're, they have close enough relations with the Russians to talk to them, but, you know, they've had very serious difficulties over Syria and other places in, in the past. So I don't see it as nefarious. I think it's a kind of a good story. Um, what I'm interested in is like the financialist interests, right? It's an area that I don't quite know yet because it's not quite clear all the dimensions of how this negotiation came together. And HD and the UN, they were dealing with all these players. They were dealing with the International Chamber of Commerce. They were dealing with, you know, the, the sort of grain association in Ukraine, which is formed by a number of Chinese Western, you know, grain, you know, giants. Um, um, so there was there was a lot of kind of financial interest in this and and also humanitarian. So, I mean, I try not to think of this stuff as like this is negative, but this is like how it's fascinating how the world works. There's a great book by two Bloomberg uh, reporters called um, The World for Sale, which is like the history of of all these trading companies like Glencore and Vital, the others who many, nobody's ever heard of, and they have unbelievably influence on the future of international diplomacy, on, on the survival of states, on the transformation of the international economy. And this is a spot where they're very active right now, uh, both on the energy front and on the food front. Well, I'm really excited about the fact that you are going to be bringing those kinds of inquisitive instincts to development reporting. But Colm, I mostly just want to say thanks so much for joining today. It's been really awesome to hear your, your takeaways from a big, exhausting couple of weeks. And I'll let you get back to the, the peaceful life of a New Yorker. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. And we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to Unga Decoded. This was our last episode in the series. We hope you've enjoyed these behind-the-scenes conversations with global development leaders. Be sure to sign up for the DevX Newswire and our other newsletters for more of our must-read insider coverage of global development. And if you want to share some feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at DevX and at AlterIgo.com.